This is Hank Gang from the Northwestern People Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Janet Dees, who is a curator of modern and contemporary art at the Block Museum of Art, which is the Contemporary Art Museum on campus. And Janet is the curator of the current exhibition that is up, which is A Site of Struggle, um, American Art Against Anti-Black Violence. And uh, Janet has been a curator for many other exhibitions at the block and also prior to her appointment at the block, she was a curator in Santa Fe, at Site Santa Fe, where she worked since 2008. So how are you doing, Janet? Good morning, Hank. I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> um, all right. It's really early in the morning. Um, so... I guess to anyone who doesn't know the Block Museum and the exhibition that's up right now, um, could you give us a brief description of your part in it and what it is? Mm -hmm. So the Block Museum of Art is the um, academic art museum for Northwestern University, um, but we are free and open to the public as well. And um, our um, mission really is to think about the ways in which art can be a springboard for conversations that are relevant to our lives today. And our exhibitions, we don't focus just on contemporary art, but our exhibitions are, are across time and cultures. And we really um, um, look at our exhibitions and our collections and the way that they can um, shine a light on under understudied or overlooked art histories and also um, to be a teaching um, and learning resource for the university and beyond. And so I've been at the block for six and a half years now um, in this position as curator of modern contemporary art. And as you said, I've um, organized several um, exhibitions over the last uh, six years. And the current exhibition, A Side of Struggle, American Art Against Anti-Black Violence, is a result of a um, almost almost six years of research and development and planning. And this is an exhibition that focuses on the different strategies that American artists have used to grapple with the issue of anti-Black violence. And it's focusing um, primarily on the hundred or so year period between the rise of anti-lynching activism in the post-Reconstruction era and ending with the founding of Black Lives Matter. So there are artworks in the exhibition that um, are, were created between 1895 and 2013, but then also more contemporary artworks that are looking back on historical um, incidents that happened within that 1895 to 2013 time period. Mm -hmm. How did you choose the different artworks to be displayed at the exhibit? Well, there were several artworks that... Um, I've you know, kind of been accumulating a list over many years. So um, first, the kind of anchor artworks um, from the exhibition, and one of them is the video by Carl and Karen Pope entitled Palimpsest, which I saw over 22 years ago. And um, it just kind of haunted me. And there were other artworks like Pat Ward-Williams' Accused Blowtorch Padlock, which were kind of anchors that um, really 
were the works that provoked the questions and the thoughts that helped shape the, the idea for the exhibition. And then just through a lot of research um, and reading um, secondary sources, visiting museum collections and um, visits with artists, started to um, you know, um, create a kind of pool of, um, of works to draw from. And I also um, had a, a curatorial research assistant help me, um, Elisa Swindell, who is now the associate curator of photography at the, at the um, Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth College. And then um, also with input from um, scholars um, within the field. So um, over, I'd say, October 2018, I held um, a convening of um, subject matter specialists to kind of give feedback about the exhibition themes and um, maybe particular works or directions they, they thought that I should be um, sure to include. And though with coming down to the final checklist, I really wanted to make sure there was a balance that was showcasing the different kinds of um, strategies that artists use, that was balanced, and it was also balanced across time periods that um, in terms of, you know, having things from the 30s and 40s, as well as things that were created later. And I also wanted to keep the checklist um, relatively... um, like fo- focus so that this sort of this deliberate um uh, there was this you know deliberate idea of create of having a moderate number of artworks in the exhibition relative to the amount of artwork that there is that's grappling with this issue so enough to support the thesis of the exhibition but not so much that it would be like unnecessarily overwhelming for visitors so you say it, it took like six years and you had a work that you saw like 20 years ago so what does this exhibition mean to you oh well it's it's um for me i guess i have particular hopes you know for the exhibition um you know i've been working in the arts for over 20 years now and i'm a real firm believer um, and the power of art to connect with people's hearts and minds and that um, I think an exhibition, what an exhibition like this can do is to inspire um, people to like take the knowledge that they're getting from the exhibition and apply that into other, inspire them to work in other arenas. So I think wanting the exhibition to um, communicate that the um, roots of racial violence within our country are very deep and long. And so as we think about um, remedies in our present, we have to take that long historical arc and complex history into account um, for people whose lived experiences um, intersect with the what the artwork is grappling with, so that they see those experiences being valued. Um, and that we also can you know, be inspired by the creativity of artists, the way in which um, art is kind of helping to kind of process this this grief and kind of metabolize it. And so, you know, for me, um, you know, as an African-American curator, a lot of the story is, very, you know, personal to me, but also I think it's, um, it should be personal to all of us as, as Americans because it's, everyone is implicated in different, in different ways in this history. And so I took, you know, wanting um, with the exhibition to be able to trace not only 
um, this sort of history of violence, but also this history of resilience and um, resistance, as well as um, intersections with other marginalized groups, as well as um, uh, multiracial kind of collaboration and solidarity in fighting against uh, racial and social injustice. Yeah, I think there is like a real benefit to having something that's very displayed and concentrated in a certain area. Like I've been to see the exhibition a few times and I think seeing those things that you normally don't see like as a student, I mean, unless you take a class about it, you just sort of are moving along, trying to get the next grade, having relationships with your friends and and continuing to just live your life. But then there's like deeper underlying um, divisions and like things that have existed within society for so long that you're not really cognizant of it in our day-to-day lives, but then seeing it all there and seeing it all very present at least for me was very like powerful in the way like I'm like oh I forgot about this since like when I learned it in grade school and so what do you think students like me have to gain from having an on-campus museum that has this exhibition up and is free and open to everyone to just walk in and Take a look at it. Well, I think the museum as a whole, not just this this particular exhibition, um, with our exhibitions and programming, you know, really is there to kind of support um, the educational experience, right? So whether it that you can come to the museum, engage with, with issues that you are addressing in classes, and the museum can kind of help to um, amplify and support what you're learning in classes, or that it can be a supplement, um, you know, if you're maybe like you said like um if you're in a major that in which you know the classes that you're taking may not intersect with these histories that you can come to the museum and have all of these other areas opened up to you and that we have you know programming that helps support and deepen that that knowledge so that's that's how i see it you know in relationship to um, students. And then I think about um, like the program that you're involved with, the Black Museum Student Associates, where there are um, students who then get involved in um, deeper ways with, with, the, with the museum, whether through internships or fellowships or being part of the Black Museum you know, Student Associates. So. so with like this exhibition in particular, you're probably working with some of the artists and... Um, it's concerning a difficult material um especially so and even with like viewers who are coming there are like people who would be more emotionally reactive and um more sensitive to the material that's being covered so how would you how have you dealt with this and how has the museum like helped with this yeah yeah so um researching um best practices about how to present so there were really like two trajectories of research with the exhibition one that was about the content and then another that was exactly around this issue of best practices to present this kind of material in the um art in an art museum and how we can best support visitor experience and this was something that um 
not just myself, but the engagement department, all, you know, different facets of the museum um, staff participated in this research. So it, it started with um, me having a convening with other museum professionals nationally who had mounted analogous kinds of exhibitions to learn about what kinds of measures they took. And then with a series of um, formal and informal conversations um, in 2019, I gave a, a lecture in partnership with the Black Arts Consortium and invited, um, and there was like over 60 undergraduate graduate students as well as staff and faculty at Northwestern who attended. And, and then we had a very extended conversation afterwards. And so that was to also gain their insight and feedback as potential first users of the exhibition as to what they would need to feel supported. And then additionally, um, it continued to have, um, you know, uh, more one-on-one -on -one conversations with other folks at Northwestern. Um, and um, then we also developed a community advisory committee um, f based in Evanston that's made up of um, folks who are working at that intersection of art and social racial justice to kind of get to get all of to kind of get all this feedback about what you need to feel supported. So taking all of that um, input in mind, there were several um, measures that we implemented to support this experience. One was this idea of a moderate checklist that I spoke about before, where, um, you know, this idea of, of having enough work that's supporting the thesis, but not so much, right? So that there could be um, space within the gallery, in the gallery, um, and that could afford some spaces for rest, right, as you're walking through. The exhibition, um, you know, you've been many times, um, is divided up into three sections, and each section focuses on a different kind of strategy that artists have used. One of the sections, entitled A Red Record, focuses on the ways in which more graphic and more depictions of violence, more literal representations of violence, have been used by artists as a way to protest violence and to, to build awareness around it. But knowing that, um, but that that section is essentially um, put in a, in a gallery inside the gallery to control the sight lines to that work. And there are content warnings at each of the entrances so that visitors have a choice about whether or not um, they want to engage with that material. And it protects it from being in their sight lines as they're looking at the other parts of the exhibition. And then there were um, other measures that we um, put in place. So there are two um, sort of sub ancillary spaces to the main exhibition. Um, one is a reflection room that's devoid, that's free of art, that's just a quiet space that people can um, come and spend time um, just to have a quiet place to process whatever is coming up for them as they engage with the artwork. There's a guided meditation that's accessible um, in that room. I mean, you can, you can um, with your phone, either through a QR code or dialing a dial-in number. I mean, you can also um, access it outside of the museum as well. But it was a guided meditation that was developed by um, a black uh, mindfulness meditation teacher, Joshua Bialafia, that's based um, in Chicago as a way, again, to help kind of process with the processing of emotion. 
And then there's also an, a resource room and a visitor's guide with extensive resources. So in the resource room, you'll encounter um, a small library that includes books that um, touch on the um, themes that are brought up in the exhibition if you want to delve deeper, but also books like um, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem or uh, Rhonda McGee's The Inner Work of Social Justice, which are about um, healing racial trauma. There is a video um, in that resource room that includes excerpts of interviews from myself and other um, some of the other scholars who worked on the project. And in this video, we're sharing not only why we work with this kind of challenging material, why we feel it's important, but also how we support ourselves um, in doing this kind of work. And that visitor's guide includes resources um, like listing um, campus um, units that can be a resource to support, um, particularly student experience, and then also organizations within Evanston and um, a few in Chicago that are working around issues of social and racial justice. Um, and there's some other, other things in that discussion questions that can be a guide for having conversations afterwards. And then uh, one thing that I um, forgot to mention, but it's really the first thing that you encounter when you walk into the gallery where the art is, is that um, when you walk in, rather than the first thing you see being a work of art, there's actually a text that's an invitation to all of us as staff and all visitors um, to um, um, help create a space of um, you know, mindful presence and kind of respect um, and for your fellow visitors, right, in that way, yeah. I think that's something I really appreciate about the block. Um, it's like a museum that really um, takes into account the viewer's experience and what the viewer might be going through instead of just putting a bunch of artwork on the wall and just expecting like the viewer to just deal with everything. And I think that's like beautiful about contemporary art and especially like the contemporary art museum styles. And um, what do you think about contemporary art versus like the more traditional types of art? Um, in, what, in what way? I'm like, like and just like, yeah. I mean, like your biography says that you're like a curator of contemporary modern art at the block. So how does, did you choose that path? Um, yes, yeah, so my training, um, you know, my, my educational training is as a, a historian of American art, um, but with an emphasis on the modern contemporary period. But I did a, a lot of, um, you know, training in like 19th century American art. And so I've always been, um, even as I've worked mostly with contemporary artists, I've always been steeped in that history. And I've always been interested in the ways in which contemporary artists are um, are engaging with history, whether it's like art history or that they're using um, art to kind of think about historical moments. I think that's been a through line um, in my practice over as a curator over the last, you know, long time, 15 years, <laughs> over 15 years now, I guess. Um, and I've, you know, and I've worked primarily, but I, you know, I have done 
uh, even though the last several years prior to doing the show, I focused on contemporary art. I have done projects that um, looked at, you know, earlier culture. You know, when I was in grad school, I was a fellow at the um, Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia and worked on a project that was um, like rethinking their collections through the lens of um, African-American history, um, you know, to develop a tour with that focus. So I've always had this connection with the, the historical. Um, and it was actually the, the encounter um, the, when I was an undergrad, um, when I was, I took this kind of survey of art history and it was taught by a professor who was a specialist in medieval art. And actually her teaching of medieval art is like what got me into art history to begin with. So um, I've never, um, yeah, there's always been, I think this interplay for me. Yeah. How did you get into art curating, art history, art just in general? Is like, did you see yourself like this when you were younger? I mean, I I didn't when I was like like younger, younger. Like, let's see how much younger. <laughs> um, when I was uh, high school and going toward college, I was actually a math and science. Um, you know, person, and I had started college as a computer science major. Um, you know, in high school, I was, you know, and I and I was drawn more toward like the mathematical sciences, like physics. Um, it's like a big jump. It's a big, it's a big jump. But even, but I always had this artistic side. Like I played the, I was in the orchestra, I played the violin, and I worked on the art and literary magazine in high school. But I never, I didn't. Um, I don't know, I just hadn't had the exposure to kind of think about how that could be a career trajectory. But when I, I went to college um, in Manhattan, and um, it was really in that first art history class that I took that I got hooked on that discipline. And for me, like art history is, is like such an interdisciplinary discipline. And I found I was learning so, like I learned so much. And it was like my mind, my brain was on fire in the art history classes. Um, you're learning not just, uh, you know, about, um, through learning about like material objects and, and art, you're also learning about philosophy. You're learning about politics. You're learning about religion and how these things intersect around material culture. And that was just really fascinating to me. And and so I just I switched from a computer science major to art history major. Oh. Was that was that relatively like quick? Um, it was pretty. It was pretty quick. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, as a freshman, I you know I did computer science. Like I was doing my programming classes. I did, you know taken did my calculus, and I was good. I mean, calculus I actually enjoyed, but like the programming, like I um, I was good at it but i just didn't get any joy from it <laughs> um and then i you know used the fact that i was going to school in a major city um like you're we're here in chicago here i was in new york city that has wonderful um cultural institutions and took those opportunities to intern at different places to get a sense of what the possibilities were for a career in the arts yeah um you've been in the arts for a while so what do you think has changed over the time like of like in art museums and contemporary art museums the way the view has changed in general like what do you think has impacted 
That's a good question. I have to think. <laughs> um, because I've, I mean, I've also changed, I've also changed positions. Like I've been a curator um, for the bulk of my career, but I also worked in museum education. I worked for a commercial gallery. So I've worked in different sectors of the art um, field. I don't know. I feel like there are things that I've seen over my career, but then studying art history, I know that there are things that are kind of like, there's these cycles that are maybe repeating. So it's like someone, you know, as someone who's maybe been in the last 20 years, like seeing this emph emphasis on um, diversifying art museums um, and um, kind of really thinking about more inclusive structures. But then as someone who studied the history prior to when I started in the field, I also know that there was a movement like that in the 60s and a movement like that in the in the 80s and the 90s. So <laughs> um, it's the cycle. Right. Um, I'm hoping it'll stick more this time that we'll kind of every time things will uh, open up more and that we get, gain more ground in those areas. Um, and I think one one um, trend that I'm seeing that I'm really appreciative and it's a way that we work as a block is that there's more collaboration between departments within museums. So like here I work really closely um, with um, not only the exhibitions and design team, but also with my colleagues in engagement and education from the beginning of projects um, to really build um, build out programming and in dialogue with each other. And then also they have a real sense from the beginning, my, my thinking around developing exhibitions. And I think that's something that more and more institutions are um, taking on. And that's rel relatively new. It used to be very isolated um, in museums. Yeah. So those are just two things I can think of, yeah. Do you think being a curator is like a fulfilling type of job where you like see your work culminating and then people interacting with it um it's it's fulfilling for me i think i really um love being a curator at a at an academic art museum that's affiliated with the university and really has a um a very clear um like research focus and educational focus um so it's for me it's Yes, it's it is like fulfilling to do the research and to have and to bring a project to fruition. But what's most also I should say, um, very fulfilling is the relationships that you build as a curator, um, and the and being a part of a community. Um, so building relationships with students, supporting them in their trajectories as, um, and in their interest in the arts with my other colleagues on Northwestern's campus, you know, faculty, staff, my colleagues at the museum, in doing a project like this, for example, like a site of struggle, um, building community and connections with um, people within the Evanston community who are interested in the arts, who are interested in social justice, and my colleagues in the field more broadly, and so that you have this um, exchange um, and on all levels. Um, in, in different spaces that I find that really rewarding and fulfilling. How did your like family react when you said you wanted to be a curator? Oh, well, it was sort of, a, it was a trajectory. So I, I, when I was in graduate school, 
um, I was still kind of um, deciding if I wanted to go an academic route versus curatorial. But I think actually being at like Northwestern, um, being at an academic museum is kind of the sweet spot. I like the kind of rigor of intellectual rigor of this environment with the um, kind of mission of public accessibility and out, and education that's looking both inward toward the university and outward toward a broader, broader public. Um, but in, just in terms of art history, I think they were a little bit confused. Like I, I come from a very large extended family, but I'm like the only person involved in the arts. Um, most of um, like my, you know, they're in sciences were really big in, in my family. Um, but the, my the family were supportive, you know, um, if not fully understanding what I was doing yet, they were, they were supportive. And I think now have kind of, a better sense of what it is that I what I do, um, and I would tease. Um, um, my mom was like uh, worked in like you know bookkeeping and, and accounting, but my dad um, was a minister, and so I would kind of tease him I'm like, "Well, your undergraduate degree was in philosophy, so I don't know art history is like more remarkable than that." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, your dad was a minister? Yes, he was. Yeah, he's no longer with us now. He's deceased. Yeah. My my dad was a was a is a pastor, um, and uh, we spent most of our time in Mississippi, where he was like the head of a Korean church. Uh, uh, a, a Korean Methodist. A Korean Presbyterian. Okay. <laughs> where like denomination? United Methodist. United. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that affected you when you were growing up? Like having a minister for a father? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I def- definitely did. I think um, both of my parents are, you know, it's raised with a certain ethics, but also that kind of sense of like uh, more kind of community responsibility um, and sense of like care, caring for other people and that kind of being important. And so I think, so I think that affected just the way that I move you know in the world and obviously my work as a curator is part of that and my father in particular was very committed to um, causes around um, social and racial justice and uh, humanitarian causes like he was a volunteer for Habitat for Humanity things like that so I think that kind of ethos that really affected how I yeah, like the kind of trajectory of the kind of work that I do. Yeah. Do you like seeing your work as like an ha- having an optimistic future? Do you think of it more like a bleak narrative or like something that the community can like work together and work against? Are those things? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I, if you're thinking about this exhibition, as I have struggle in particular or just overall? I, I mean overall and also like yeah. this exhibition I think that it's sort of wanting it to be informed hope <laughs> I guess it would be a way of putting it um, and I think that there is like I said on the one hand this like trajectory of continual violence right which can be very heavy to take in but it's also you know, a trajectory of continual, like, resistance, like, we're all still here, despite all of these things that, 
forces that were trying to eliminate us. So I find great strength in that. Um, and that the, and that the artistic, like showcasing the work that artists are doing that are almost like metabolizing it, sort of taking something that is, you know, horrific and, 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 and working with it to, to create it into something else, to something that's beautiful, that can be a source of inspiration to go forward. So I guess that's how I, I think about it. Did you ever consider making art after like working with so many artists and studying art history? Um, um, no, I mean, when I was an undergrad, um, like I, I did take studio class, but it's basically like, uh, which I really appreciated. They basically had in my undergrad classes, like a studio class for art historians, basically. <laughs> so, so that you have a sense of like what it takes, at least on a, on a surface level, right. To like, to make things, so you have an understanding of materials. And I think that that's important. Um, but I never um, thought about myself as like becoming an artist. I mean, I express, I think, my creativity in other ways, um, aside from the visual art. And when it comes to visual art, I, being a researcher and a supporter of artists. What other creative ways? Um, well, like I said, I played music. I was um, the, the violin and the piano. Um, you still do? Um, the piano, not as much, but the violin, yeah, I do. <laughs> not in public as much anymore, but I, I did. Um, and writing is very creative um, for me, yeah. Do you like to journal or? Um, like, you know, I don't know if I'd call it like journaling for say. I mean, I think about even with the sort of um, – more academic kind of writing I do like for the publication whatever I think about that as a creative process right so even um, even though it's not like invention in the sense of writing fiction um, to be able to uh, craft a narrative that is sharing something with the reader about how you're thinking about the art that that you're put brought together and the research that you've developed I think that's creative creativity in that right um, yeah. <laughs> I I think like creativity is really important in someone's life. It's whether it's like doing art or other things like writing and just even like sometimes journaling. It's like getting your mind focused on creating like a creative output, something that is like a reflection of yourself in a way and seeing it instead of because if it's just in your mind I feel like it's in there but it's not like concrete it's always flowing and so you always question unless you really like double down and see what's in your mind it's always in there but if you express it outwardly yeah yeah and I think like I have a practice of um like writing, like kind of, I mean, I do, you do that, I don't do this as much, but like gathering, I guess, like, so like if I have a thought or um, I, I sometimes like I keep a notebook like that has to do with like, um, like, a, like if I see a work of art and I have a response to it, sort of writing that down. So we have this kind of collection and it's almost maybe like akin to an artist sketchbook where you're sort of um, thinking through ideas Um uh, for things that might become finished works of art, I kind of do that 
um, as a curator. Like I have fragments of a poem, um, thoughts about art, different lots of artwork that I've seen that I'm like, I'm not sure what this is yet, but I just want to, you know, have a place to, to collect it. So I do do that. And there's like a lot of different ways you can express like your response to things like I know Layla Ali, mm -hmm. she has a very particular art style where it's like they're almost like stick figures, but it's like not representative in a certain way of like a specific race or those things. And it's almost like she makes them in like Microsoft Paint, like the way she uses the ovals and the circles and the colors but it's just like captivating in a way. And once you learn more about it and the intentions behind the artist, those things start to like get revealed to you. Do you have like experiences like that where you see things and you're like, oh, that's like weird. But then the more you know and the more you learn, it just begins to open up to you yeah i mean there's like um i mean layla's work was was like that um i mentioned earlier the one video in the exhibition by carl and karen pope entitled palimpsest was like that for me the first time i saw it was in 2000 so 22 years ago and um for, for you know this is a, a work in the exhibition where um uh, that's made by twin siblings they're fraternal twins um the brother is a artist and the sister Karen is a poet and they collaborated to make this work together and it's a video piece where um, there are three acts that the artist is having done to his body and a poem that the sister Karen has written that becomes like the soundtrack and you um, for for these um, actions and each of the acts um, so one is a branding one is a surgical incision where he has his skin lifted up so you can, and the light is shown through so you can see how thin that layer of skin is that holds so much weight in our society. And then the third act is a tattoo of a um, portion of the poem that his sister is reciting that's thinking about this process um, of being um, a black person and being conscious of not only like how you see yourself, but also having to negotiate how others are projecting their fears on you and then moving through the world that way. And I remember the first time I saw it, um, and a lot of people who've seen it here have had this similar reaction where they found it difficult to look at because it, um, you know, the branding and the, the, the tattoo and then the surgical incision, and it, it was like you can feel it in your body. But I remember watching it, you know, um, it was when it, at, at this museum where I encountered it and then this kind of light bulb like went off where I was thinking about the violence that he's making reference to with these, with these acts, the, the real violence that African-American people have faced and continue to face is like not, is so much more, you know, compared to these very controlled acts that he's um, has agency over his own body and I, it just I just had this kind of profound I don't know this moment of revelation that wanted me to really think about the work more so I actually wrote my master's thesis about it like a long time ago 17 years <laughs> yeah so I mean that's just one example um, 
that relates to one of the works that's on view at the, the museum right now. Yeah. Yeah, I could, I think I had the same reaction in the beginning, like that sort of, oh my God, like it's really gruesome. But I guess if we did have like that same video technology back in the day, there would have been so many worse things like video wise like and sometimes i just can't even wrap my head around like the things like lynchings and those things like just happened like what was it like it wasn't mary turner like like a pregnant woman and like those are things like i can't comprehend like a person could just watch like on the sideline and just commit those types of acts and i think that video is like just a very small thing but even we can't really get like into it and like see it for you know its gruesomeness and i think that's the current society is a lot like that um we've been shielded a lot from the real gruesome acts of violence that happen like i was watching this one video and it's just like animals dying like killing animals for the slaughterhouse but even that like just completely dumbfounded me i was like this is where the meat comes from like like the horrible acts of violence like the castration of the babies like those are the things that just happen normally and it's just something that we're so disconnected with in our reality. Yeah. Well, I think there's, and I think there's kind of a couple of trajectories on the one hand. There's things like that, like you're talking about, that we're disconnected from. But then there are other kinds of violence that we, like, you know, and I'm not um, making any, um, like, judgment you know our um judgment about it but there are other kinds of like we do see on the news but also in um films or things like that where i think there's a point where we see it so much too that we can be disconnected from it right that there's both things happening in a and when i think art can do like a piece like uh the palms that they can in some ways can kind of get in between and maybe reach us in our hearts and our heads um in a way kind of um to resensitize us you know yeah um yeah i feel like in, on the news we like hear it and we like can see sometimes like video clips but like the really up close thing that's happening usually that's not captured it's usually like some blurry video but like that like video in the gallery that just shows you in really high quality of what's going on and it just elongates it and you start to realize that's what they're trying to show yeah and and i think like what's um so smart about palimpsest right because it's not showing like any acts of violence right like that's the thing right it's not there's no representation of any violence in that video it's you know these things that the artist like getting a branding you know having a, a, a surgical incision a tattoo these are all very controlled acts but and it's a way i think is so brilliant about it is that but we feel them 
and then you can then sort of ex extrapolate, right, the magnitude of something that isn't right controlled and that's being inflicted on someone, right, without their choice. And so that's why I think where the poetry is in that in that piece, um, and where art, where the symbolic um, or the metaphorical can um, maybe reach us or, or or and 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 kind of give us that space to look and to be with um things that um if we were shown like in a in a more direct way um maybe we would look away right um i you know those are just some thoughts yeah this is something we talked about in um like our block museum student associate discussions um but uh, what do you think is more important resonance with the piece or wonder at like first seeing it and being like amazed at like the technical skills of it oh you're reading stephen greenblatt huh <laughs> resonance and wonder <laughs> yeah that well -known one essay um i think they work together um i think that and i'm not i'm not thinking about any one piece in particular but i think that sometimes the wonder is what can draw you in to look at something close enough to then open up the space for it to resonate with you. <laughs> yeah, so that the beauty or the technical skill of a work of art can, like, right, is like what maybe gets you to stop and pause, and then as you're sitting with it, it allows all the other layers, right, to um, connect with you. So I don't, I think from my perspective that they work they work together do you need wonder though i think there's some pieces there's much less wonder but then there's so much more like once you know the story behind the piece yeah i mean you i mean i think there's um some artists that have taken that as a tact act actually as like a stance like to create works that like aren't beautiful like on purpose almost as a um either as an aesthetic choice to sort of refuse wonder particularly if they're dealing with atrocity like like we shouldn't have to have it be beautiful in order to look at it and resonate so i think that that's also a valid a, you know approach and it's an approach that some artists have taken but i was just sort of saying that i don't think that but i think i don't think that they necessarily have to be separable but i think that they can work in tandem with each other I agree. I feel like art should be visually appealing to a certain extent. Like, you have to be drawn into it. And and then you sort of start to read the little description on the side because you're interested and that makes everything make sense. But I also think, too, like, wonder isn't always equated with beauty, right? Like, so you could be drawn into looking closely at something because it's not beautiful or because it um, is inscrutable. You're like, there's, you know, like a lot of conceptual, you know, you know it's like, so there's so much in the history of art, right, that plays with all these ideas where it's like, okay, there's a box on the wall. <laughs> or or you know, I'm just like making, you know, um, so that I think wonder doesn't always have to equal equate with beauty. 
right? But that it's it's something about the way that it the form is inviting you to look closely, look yeah, closer. Yeah, definitely. You have to go soon, but is there anything else you'd like to say about the exhibition or about how I guess people should come and like see it and see for themselves what we've been talking about here? Um, uh, sure. So the exhibition um, will be on view here at the block until July 10th. And then it travels to the Montgomery Museum of Fine Arts in Montgomery, Alabama um, from August 13th to November 6th. And I guess I would just um, yeah ask, you know, um, if people come with an open mind and an open heart and to just say how um, those people who have visited so far that I've had the opportunity to interact with and to hear from how moving it's been to see how people are really engaged with the exhibition and that it's being received in the way that it was being offered as a kind of act of, not only as an act of scholarship, but as an act of love and act of care. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Janet, for speaking with me. Thank you, Hank. Um, this has been the Northwestern People Podcast with Hank Gang and... Janet Dees. And thank you for listening. See you later.